This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Nathan Kelly, who's author of America's Inequality Trap. This was published in 2019 by University of Chicago Press. And Nate takes us through a really interesting and, and very clearly laid out discussion of the question of economic inequality and how that relates to um, politics. But I'm going to let Nate explain that to us. First, I'd like to welcome Nathan Kelly to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I really am grateful for the opportunity to talk about the the book a little bit. And like you know, like like any book length project, the um, uh, generation of this thing took a long time and and was a lengthy process. I've been interested in, in income inequality, economic inequality, and politics for basically as long as I've been a political scientist. My dissertation was about uh, income inequality and politics. My first book was, and I've just continued to work on related questions through my through my whole career. But this this book specifically um, started out. Um, not as a book at all, but as a series of, of articles where I was exploring um, questions related to feedback, where a lot of my early work was about how politics affects inequality. I hadn't paid much attention at all to how inequality, inequality affects politics. Um, and so I, I wrote a, a handful of articles and started to realize that a lot of the results in those articles sort of hung together and told a more uh, unified story than maybe I realized before I before I started. Um, and then I was, a, I was attending a, a, a little conference at Yale that um, Veshla Weaver and Jacob Hacker put on up there. Um, and as I was participating in those discussions, um, some more detailed ideas crystallized for me about how some of the various pieces of the political system and economic inequality might fit together. Um, and I had a preliminary conversation with Larry Jacobs, um, who's the series editor at Chicago, um, uh, in, in American politics and uh, talked through some ideas with him that, that I had. And he was very enthusiastic about the project from the, from the start. And, uh, and then things took off from there. And, uh, you know, a lot of hard work later, the book is, um, is finally in print. Uh, so it's been a fun process. Um, uh, and, and I think one that has produced some hopefully fruitful results that will spur others to uh, dive in on some of these questions in the future as well. And and what you're talking about, and and you you really nicely lay this out in the book with diagrams and charts, is the connection between this question of economic inequality, politics, which includes partisanship, um, and you know sort of political dynamics among uh, elected officials, um, and also policy. Uh, and so, what I'd like is for you to sort of unpack the connection between these three areas that you started to do a little bit in terms of how inequality affects politics and how politics affects inequality. Yeah. So the, in the book, I try to take a, a pretty sort of big picture take on how inequality and politics are related to each other. Of course, even with the big picture take that I take, there's a lot of things that I don't um, really address. For instance, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking very specifically at economic inequality and even within that at income inequality uh, when, it, when it comes down to how I'm measuring and, and conceptualizing inequality. Now, of course, um, there are many other forms of inequality that may be even more important than economic inequality. 
Um, certainly racial inequality overlaps with economic inequality, and that comes into the discussion somewhat in the book, but it isn't a, a clear emphasis. Um, but I, I tried to think about various parts of the macro political system. So the, the American political system sort of writ large um, and, and not limiting myself just to political institutions, not limiting myself just to political behavior, but kind of taking a, a, a broader view. And so um, sort of my my training, most of my training is, is, is emphasizes public opinion. And so that's kind of where I start in the book. So I talk about how the mass public responds to, um, to economic inequality. Um, and I find that uh, large portions of the population actually respond to inequality in ways that serve to further reinforce inequality through the political system. So um, when inequality rises, Democrats do worse at the polls, um, despite the fact that uh, electing Democrats does tend to ameliorate inequality, at least to some extent. Um, but it, the, the story doesn't just stop with uh, political behavior and the mass public, uh, but I also dive into uh, some of the effects on the policy system and the structures and institutions of American politics as well. So I look at how Congress in a context of uh, partisan polarization and rising inequality uh, finds it very, very difficult to respond with new policy initiatives as inequality rises. And that lack of uh, creation of new policy initiatives has the tendency to uh, reinforce and exacerbate existing inequalities. Um, And while policy inaction is part of the story that I look at, I also look at ways that uh, policy action has happened uh, in particularly narrow domains that actually reinforces inequality. So I look at, at financial deregulation specifically uh, in the book and find that as inequality has risen, Democrats have actually had some incentives to find common ground with Republicans on these issues of deregulation and uh, and that the policies that are produced by these sort of limited bipartisan um, uh, agreements are oftentimes and tend to be more inequality inducing than they are inequality ameliorating. So we have a, a system, both in terms of the behavior of the actors within the system, but also the way the institutions in a sense process um, economic inequality um, that as time goes along serves to, uh, serves to reinforce inequality, at least for, for um, the history that I analyzed. And, and the, the title of your book, America's Inequality Trap, um, you go through, and this is not just, you know, sort of a title um, catching the eye of a reader, you go through and sort of discuss early on in the book what you mean by this concept of trap. Um, and this goes to some of the points that you just made with regard to um, how the concentration of economic inequality, particularly based on income, kind of traps the system um, and doesn't allow or sort of is is very difficult to sort of move the system forward with regard to addressing income inequality. Can you talk about this concept of that trap? Yeah, I mean, I think of the inequality trap or a trap in general in this context in a couple of different ways. And I think that the sort of traditional way to think about a trap is that something happens and then you're, you're sort of stuck. So I think about, you know, the, the bear getting stuck in the classic, you know, metal trap in the, in the forest that the uh, hunter puts out and is immobilized and stuck. And there's a, there's a sense 
in which the inequality trap is like that. Um, because when inequality is high, I find that there are lots of different ways that it's very challenging for the system to respond um, to that existing inequality. And so that inequality is unlikely to be undone uh, through policy responses. And so in that sense, we, we face sort of a traditional trap. Uh, but another way that I think about the trap is a sort of less traditional trap. And it's more like a black hole in the sense that once you start moving in a particular direction, there are reinforcing effects that actually exacerbate the problem. Um, so not only are is the system sort of reinforcing existing inequality and keeping it the same, but in some senses, actually, the system um, responds in ways that once inequality is going in a particular direction, it's going to keep it going in that direction um, for, for a while. And that's you know, one of the reasons that I think we've seen these very, very long runs of rising and falling inequality over time. So we've been essentially 40 years in to a steady increase in income concentration in the United States. And part of the reason for that is that we have these, these trap, but also black hole type effects where we just get sucked toward more and more income concentration. And the political system um, is, is an important aspect of, of generating that, that type of trap. And, and so in terms of that, that sort of you, you graph it out so beautifully in the book um, that there was um, the income inequality that, that um, trajected upwards to, prior to the Great Depression. And then there was, you know, sort of a downward slope and then there was a trajectory upwards. Um, and so we, you've graphed it over, you know, 100 years now. Um, that what are the, the ways that you saw with regard to how that became such um, a dynamic, yeah, and I think one of the one of the sort of puzzles that I encountered in the book that's a that's an obvious puzzle. If you just look at that um, that classic chart of of top income shares, really a great measure of income concentration over time that is available over this you know more than hundred year period at this point. Um, inequality by that measure was very very high prior to the Great Depression. Um, but then uh, that the, the path of that variable changed, and it, we we saw declines in inequality for decades and decades um, until the 1970s, when things reversed again and headed the other direction. and And we're now in a situation where inequality is just as high as it was in the sort of roaring 20s. Um, and and so one of the puzzles is that why why in the 1920s and 1930s was there a response that was generated that reduced inequality so much, um, and why, when we're in the same context and we have a major crisis um, in in 2007 and 2008, that we don't see the same kind of policy response, even though inequality was uh, similarly high. And one of the one of the things that I sort of point to, and this is not a solid conclusion in the book, but one thing that I kind of discuss. Um, and needs more exploration um, is that income concentration in the twenties and thirties was actually not so focused on concentration at the top in a few hands as we sometimes um, tend to think that it was Um, right now we have income concentration where all of the concentration and income is really happening at the top um, of the, uh, of the income distribution. But um, in the 20s and 30s, there was a lot more inequality in the middle. So sort of normal people were probably a lot more capable of seeing and experiencing inequality 
than, than they are today. And this seems to have some potential consequences for the extent to which um, inequality actually becomes reinforcing through the political system. Um, and so I think that's um, an, an interesting part, potentially, of the, of the story. You're, you're talking about why we have a different form of income concentration right now versus the kind of income concentration that preceded the Great Depression. Um, and the part of what you're discussing is the experience that people have with regard to who has that wealth. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And really, how many people have that wealth? And, you know, right now, um, money is much more in the hands of a small group of people. I mean, it's that it's not even the top 1% where we see income concentration happening at such an extreme level. It's really the top 1% of the top 1%. So you're talking about a very, very rarefied group. Um, and, and really, um, a pretty insulated group that, that people, um, don't necessarily, uh, don't necessarily see. Although, um, people are cognizant of rising inequality. And even when they are cognizant of it, um, they don't necessarily respond the way we might expect them to. Um, and I think part of that is that the, the kind of inequality that they really see isn't the kind of inequality um, that is actually present in the current system where it's so concentrated at the very, very tip top. And so you and I say don't necessarily interact with people who have that that sort of very high concentration of wealth, like 99% of Americans don't necessarily interact with them. That's, um, yeah, that's right. And, and so that, that we know it exists, but we don't sort of have an understanding of how it impacts us per se, um, because we're not necessarily in sort of a dynamic with people who have that kind of wealth. Um, but one of the points that you make in the book, and one of the points that you have also articulated, is that um, that there's a connection between the sort of policy um, pursuits uh, around income inequality and the parties themselves that sort of may be um, counterintuitive, shall we say. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, as you sort of noted, that when inequality rises, Democrats tend to do worse in the polls, at least in the 20th century. Right. And, and so that's the thing. I mean, we sort of expect a democratic system to, in some sense, act kind of like a, a thermostat or a braking system. Um, where thing, if things go too far in one direction or the other, we kind of think, oh, well, the, the people will respond um, in the opposite direction uh, and will uh, elect leaders who are making different decisions that will ameliorate the, the problem. Um, and we just don't see that um, with regard to public opinion or elections and how they respond to rising inequality. And the thing that I think probably the key thing that I that I found in the book that I think is is interesting, and others have found um, using different kinds of analysis, sort of similar findings that are supportive of each other. Um, there's a there's a very very strong interaction between um, racism, racial animus, uh, whatever term you want to apply to it. Um, and economic inequality. So what I what I what I found is that 
for a for the subset of people who have um, a lot of racial animus, um, they they respond to rising inequality by becoming less supportive of redistribution. Um, and so that undermines the sort of thermostatic response that we might typically expect to see. And of course, politicians are very adept at taking advantage of, of the openings that rising inequality uh, presents to, um, to capitalize on racial divisions. I mean, we've certainly seen that uh, in the very recent past. Uh, in the United States. So the patterns that are in the book are sort of like showing up in the headlines uh, all the time right now, um, where we see racial animus and and economic inequality being used to um, to reinforce each other um, in uh, electorally. Now, the legs on that might be running out, uh, but it's it's something that has been common in the past and continues to be common now. And and so not only do we see that, but, you know, this was kind of a trope of the coverage of 2016, um, economic anxiety among particularly white voters um, and how that translated to support for Donald Trump. Um, and so you're talking about essentially people who are not necessarily the most um, wealthy or elite but are then sort of advocating for policies that are going to be ones that favor the most wealthy or elite, even if they are not themselves those people. Is that correct? Yes, partially. I mean, I think that it's, it's important to note that, you know, when we look at the cross-sectional evidence that people who, are, uh, who have less income, um, are, they do tend to be more supportive than rich people of redistribution. But what's important to note is that over time, as inequality increases, those folks actually become less distinct from rich people in terms of their support for redistribution. And so it, it undermines the thermostatic effect. So, I, I mean, I do want to be clear about that. Um, but, but, but yeah, we see this, this overlap of economic anxiety and racism. And that's where, you know, I, I think that a lot of the discussion about the 2016 election has been focused on, is it economic anxiety or is it racism that drove the result? And I think those are useful discussions to have to try to figure out sort of which factor is primary. But I think it ultimately the, the big picture answer is if you if you want to know whether it was economic anxiety or racism that generated 2016 outcomes, the answer is yes, it was both. <laughs> they were they, they worked in tandem. Um, and it, it's I think that's the the important takeaway. And that was one of the points that I found you tracing throughout the book that was like, oh, it's it's not one or the other. It's it's both um, that that came together in this interesting way as you're sort of uh, pushing through the research. Um, so I wanted to ask a little bit more about the sort of policymaking process um, and how income inequality and particularly the rising income inequality shapes that process in a way that sort of triggers this or, or um, sort of makes the trap a little bit more static? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that we have to keep in mind at the outset is just that when, when something is happening in the uh, policy space, when there's a problem that needs to be solved, action needs to be taken uh, for it to be solved. And so uh, when inaction occurs, the status quo will be reinforced. 
Um, so as inequality rises, action has to happen in order to uh, undo that rising inequality. But as it turns out, it becomes more of a challenge in the context of rising inequality to, uh, to produce policy. And I mean, and this, this finding goes you know, back to uh, McCarty Poole and Rosenthal's uh, book, Polarized America, where they found this interesting linkage and dance between party polarization and, uh, and income inequality. I look specifically not just at, at polarization, but actually how much policy is produced um, in the American policy system and find that there is, in fact, uh, less policy made when, when inequality rises. And when you have policy not being made in the context of rising inequality, that is going to uh, produce this trap-like situation. And, and so there's the question of policy that is not made, as it were, to change the um, inequality situation so that you, you know, as you say, less policy is made when there is higher income inequality. Um, but there's also the flip side of that that you look at towards the end of the book where policies are made that exacerbate income inequality. Right. Right. Um, which which is the flip of that. So how what is the context for that? Yeah, every once in a while I get a question like, well, how can you kind of have it both ways? I thought the story is that policy isn't made. And now you're saying that policy action also is part of this inequality trap. How can that possibly be? And, you know, I want to want to be clear that the, the main story is that uh, inequality makes it harder to make policy. Um, so the so the the big, you know, the big item is that there's a trap created because policy just generally isn't made very uh, in, in very large amounts uh, when when inequality is high. But uh, policymakers are still working to do stuff even when it's really hard to make policy. And as it turns out, those areas where compromises can be found uh, tend to be the places where uh, inequality would be exacerbated. Um, so. Uh, so it, it became easier to sell Democrats on uh, financial deregulation as inequality was higher, in part because their constituents needed access to credit in order to sort of keep things afloat. Um, and so while the deregulation uh, effort had been ongoing for years with Republicans leading the charge, they still needed some agreement from Democrats in order to make it happen. It's not like Democrats... Um, you know, 100% supported deregulation. That's not the case at all. But Republicans were able to peel off more effectively a small number of Democrats to support financial deregulation when inequality was high and, and some Democratic constituents were in, in need of access to credit uh, that the deregulators could, um, could say would start to flow more readily if financial deregulation happened. So that was you know, part of it. And then, of course, there were, you know, those in the Democratic Party that sort of had ideational um, leanings toward uh, a more free market uh, uh, orientation. And, and that obviously helped the situation as well. But some of that, um, some of that can also likely be traced back to rising inequality and some of the, the electoral incentives that that it creates, even for Democrats. So uh, on on all of these happy notes, <laughs> And we have this um, really high concentration of income inequality that we're facing these days in the midst of a global pandemic and economic downturn, um, a rising deficit, all of those things. Um, oh, what's the solution, Nate? 
Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that question a lot. And, you know, there's clearly not a solution. One of the, one of the stories I think of the book is that to get things moving in a different direction requires coordinated action on a lot of fronts. So, um, you, you need policy responses that will push against, uh, rising inequality, but, but it's harder to get those policy actions in the context of, of high inequality, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. Um, when the, when, the, when the balance of political power shifts, it means that um, those who are more favorable toward egalitarian outcomes, frankly, we're talking about, you know, it's a partisan thing. It's, it's Democrats that are going to be doing that. They need to prioritize um, those new kinds of policies and, those, and, and policies that, um, that reverse the trend toward more inequality um, would have electoral benefits for Democrats down the road as well. So while, while the inequality trap is depressing in a lot of ways for those who are more progressive and, and uh, more egalitarian in their desires, um, at the same time, uh, the, the, the fact that the inequality trap exists and there, there are so many parts to it means that there are a lot of targets for action as well. Um, so I don't think there's any sort of like, well, okay, here's the clear path of how, how we get out of it. Um, but what we see happening now with social movements, um, with, uh, with, with white people in pretty small places in rural America, um, at least um, symbolically supporting uh, efforts like Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, it suggests that, that, that there may be some change afoot. Change is going to be hard. And, and I would advise uh, those who want to see these changes happen that they really do need to pay care- very careful attention to um, the institutional reforms that can be self-reinforcing. So making sure that it's not just about passing the favorite policy uh, in the moment, but it's also about changing the structures of how policy is made um, in order to make it easier for those things to happen in the future. Like, I mean, wh- one of the first things that I would recommend is doing away with the filibuster. Um, and that's actually starting to be discussed, I think, more uh, more broadly and, and more publicly now. And that's something that Democrats uh, ought to get on board with if they're concerned about these things. And it's the thing, and it's the kind of thing that activists need to argue uh, hard for um, so that the structures that exist now can be shifted uh, in ways that may make the, the trap of inequality harder to sustain. So the filibuster, which allows you to hold up legislation in the Senate, why would getting rid of the filibuster necessarily change the the dynamics around this particular um, sort of situation. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think that any one institutional reform is going to solve all the problems by any stretch. And I think that a lot of, of the course. issues that are, that are present would be, you know, present with the filibuster uh, gone or not. But um, the filibuster is one of the, one of the key institutions that exist in American politics that leads to status quo bias and makes it hard for policy to pass. You can have massive, uh, massive support in the public and even in the Senate uh, for a, a policy reform. And when you need 60 votes, which is what the filibuster essentially requires, a supermajority, um, it makes it a lot more difficult to get to get policy made. And so when when a problem exists that requires policy action, having that veto point in place um, that requires a supermajority causes major problems in terms of. Uh, of achieving policy change. So the, obviously there would be, you know, there can be backlash effects too. I mean, if the filibuster is gone, 
then when uh, the other side gets uh, gets power, they can make changes more quickly as well. But the broad story of American history is that uh, when policy changes, on average, it shifts in a progressive direction, so in an egalitarian direction. So those who are supportive of progressive policies um, would do well to sort of get past their fear of what the other side might do in the absence of filibuster um, and, and support that reform. And, and the Madisonian system, as it's set up, is one that, that by its very nature kind of favors policy inaction. Um, I would suggest because of the the sort of separation of powers and the difficulty of getting legislation passed, um, filibuster or no filibuster. Uh, but you're not necessarily recommending that we throw out the Madison Madisonian system, are you? No, I mean, I guess I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily going that far. Um, others have, others have, <laughs> and <laughs> have have made those arguments. Um, with or without the filibuster, policymaking is going to be slow. Policymaking is going to require a lot of consensus in the U.S. system. Um, so I don't think people have to worry about like these, you know, if they're worried about wild changes happening, getting rid of the filibuster isn't going to cause that to happen. Um, but, you know, I think that we do have a system that is very much biased towards stasis and we have a structure that doesn't work very well in such a consensual um, set of institutions. I mean, when we have, when we have party polarization on the scale that we have now, it is so hard to gain um, the sufficient consensus that's required to to pass policy that we just sort of have a mismatch between our political and policymaking institutions and our partisan um, distribution of, of preferences. So while I'm not ready to sort of latch onto, yeah, let's just dump the Senate completely. Um, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not impossible to persuade on that point. Um, so we would have the 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 House and not necessarily the Senate, which you know there are lots of questions about the the voice of the people in the Senate versus the House, of course. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you a, a question that sort of came up a little bit as you were talking about how you got into this research that you've always been a scholar of inequality. Um, and inequality in politics. Um, but I'm wondering, as you went through this research, and, and as you say, it started out as a number of articles and, and built towards a book, was there anything particularly surprising in your findings that you didn't expect? Well, I mean, I, I did not expect to see the uh, differential response to rising inequality in the public uh, that, that was exactly the way it, it turned out to be. Um, that that poor people um, were more likely to respond to rising inequality by becoming essentially more conservative on economic issues was was surprising to me. Um, and diving into the the diving into the notion that, that that race and racism was an important aspect there sort of explained the the, the surprise a bit. Uh, but when I first saw that, I was pretty stunned. Uh, I remember the first days when I was doing some of the analysis where I was breaking down the the response to rising inequality by income group. I created some some charts that maybe made it into the book, but maybe didn't. But I remember sharing them on Twitter and saying, these are some of the most surprising and interesting results I've ever seen. 
um, here's what I'm finding. And, uh, and other people were, were also surprised uh, and, and it was encouraging to see that the initial results were, um, were as shocking as, as, as they turned out to be. And, and does this follow on some of the other research you note in the book um, referencing Kathy Kramer's work? But I'm even thinking back to the sort of popular book about 15, 20 years ago by Thomas Franks, What's the Matter with Kansas? Um, and it seems to be sort of tying in with, with some of our understanding or thinking about um, sort of uh, white rural populations in particular. Yeah. I mean, I think that it dovetails really, really nicely with Kathy Kramer's work, which is just amazing. I mean, what she's, what, what she's done is so enlightening um, and has had already such an important impact. Um, And, you know, I'm obviously taking a very different approach in terms of my analysis. It's totally, almost totally quantitative. um, Whereas Kathy Kramer's work is, is very deeply qualitative and um, really interacts with people on a very personal level. But I think that the results that I, that I find, um, quantitatively really, really reinforce a lot of the findings that, that she has. And I think one of the things that it sort of points to both her work and my work, um, even if I didn't really explicitly discuss it, is just sort of the way that people actually think about inequality is definitely not the way that academics tend to think about inequality. I mean, economists, political scientists, sociologists, when we talk about inequality, we talk about Gini coefficients and top 1% shares, and we use the term inequality a lot, and, and basically people don't use that those kinds of terms a lot. They're, they're typically making very specific comparis- comparisons. They're thinking about how they are different than others, and they think about how they are different and the same from others in their social circle or in their town. Um, and they aren't necessarily thinking about those, uh, you know, multi-billionaires that exist someplace else. Um, and if they do have some interaction with a millionaire or a billionaire in their town, a lot of times that interaction is very carefully managed by the uh, wealthier individual who comes in and, and tries to make sure that everyone sees that actually uh, they're just like the, the middle income and poor people in the town and they do a lot of good things for the town. And, and um, it's it sort of, uh, this may be too strong of a term, but it, it kind of manipulates uh, people in a sense. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's fascinating to think more carefully about how people really experience um, economic disparities of various types. And I think there are a number of scholars who are um, who are starting to do that. Um, in addition to, you know, Kathy Kramer's important work, I think there, there are others who are diving in, diving in even more specifically to some of these questions about the experiences of economic inequality and how people really talk about it and how people really um, come into contact or don't um, with it in their lived experience. Yeah, I, I think some colleagues of mine actually are working on a book from the University of Chicago on this right now. Um, Amber Wachowski and her co-author, um, who yes. have a book. Yes, <laughs> yes, they've got a book coming out, and it's it's an excellent one. I've I've um, I've seen it, and it is uh, they make some really powerful arguments and some really useful findings about how it is that people really do think about inequality. Um, and it's very rigorous as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's one to look out for it. It may even already be out. I'm not sure. Not quite out yet, but okay. soon. Yeah. 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 People can <laughs> look it. out for it. It's a good one. Yeah. It's on my list. Um, 
So Nate, what are you working on now? Uh, so uh, I've got another book project in the works with um, co-authors that we're actually close to finishing up. Um, the, the It actually dovetails quite nicely with the Inequality Trap book. Um, it's called uh, Hijacking the Congressional Agenda. And uh, what we focus on in, in that book is what members of Congress are talking about. Um, we're particularly interested in the extent to which they talk about issues that are of uh, particular interest to upper income individuals, as opposed to issues that are more important to middle income and lower income Americans. And we, uh, we explore ways that uh, people with money can influence that process and influence what um, gets uh, attended to and, and what doesn't. It's a mixed methods book. Um, we do some uh, quantitative text analysis in addition to some detailed case studies of various policymaking processes. Um, and one of the one of the core quantitative findings that we have is that uh, even if you just focus on campaign contributions, which is maybe the sort of tip of the iceberg about how wealthy individuals and corporations would influence the political process, there's a very direct relationship between money received from interests and what members of Congress talk about and what they pay attention to um, in terms of the policy space. Um, so we find some very very clear effects um, of money on the policy agenda. And, um, you know, I think that there are more and more studies that are finding explicit effects of money on politics, but we, we focus on the agenda setting stage of the process and find that money has a, has important effects um, there. So it's a, uh, we're actually, it's under review right now and uh, hopefully we'll uh, have a home for it soon. Well, I hope you'll come and talk to me about that with your co-authors when it comes out. We, we sure will. We would love to do that. Um, it's, a, it's an exciting project. That'd be great. Um, I want to thank Nathan Kelly for joining me today to talk about America's Inequality Trap. This is published by University of Chicago Press um, in 2019, I think is the copyright date. And I'm sure it can be purchased at the University of Chicago Press website. Um, is there a brick and mortar store online that you would like to shout out, Nate? Uh, well, you know, I love Union Avenue Books um, in downtown Knoxville, and uh, they're uh, they're a terrific outfit. Great. Um, so, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. <laughs>